Good afternoon, Dr. Dang Ware. Come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest in the USA. Today is, of course, the 12th day of June 2021. I want to talk to you today about pharmacodynamics. So let's get right into it. The concept of pharmacokinetics uh, was covered in our last episode. And you can understand it relative to the absorption, distribution, elimination associated with um, also metabolism that we talked about in great deal. Remember that pharmacokinetics has to do with the dosage regimen and the concentration of a given drug uh, versus time that you find in the serum. That's one way of measuring the pharmacokinetics of a drug. There's also a crossover into pharmacodynamics, which has to do with concentration over time in tissues and other body fluids, because part of that is related to how the drug is metabolized, and concentration versus time at site of infection as well. The fully clad pharmacodynamics has to do with what the uh, sensu stricto, pharmacological or sometimes toxicological effect of a drug has on the system. And if it's an antibiotic, for example, what is the effective uh, potency of that antibiotic over time? Now, many, many, many pharmaceuticals that are used in cancer research and also in cancer therapy cardiovascular disease and also in metabolic diseases have specific targets. And so pharmacodynamics is going to talk about how drugs are targeted. And so we talk about mode of action of that drug. And that's how I'm going to deal with uh, the definition of it. So remember that we talked about ADME last time, as I said, that was absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. We talked about the fact that those criteria influence the drug levels and, of course, the kinetics of the drug exposure to whatever tissues may be sensitive to that drug. But that will influence the performance and pharmacological activity of the compound as a drug. Now, how drugs are absorbed, distributed, and excreted by the body, of course, is that pharmacokinetic phase, right? So... A major question we can ask then, after we covered pharmacokinetics, is how do the drugs produce their effect? Does any given drug produce its effect? Drugs typically interact in a structurally specific way, often with, say, a protein receptor or some kind of mediated response that will allow the drug to enter the cell. <clears throat> this can often activate a secondary messenger system and then that, of course, would produce a biochemical and physiological response. For example, changes in intracellular calcium concentrations, which would result in muscle contraction or relaxation. And many of the most common receptors that take in drugs, of course, are classical transmembrane receptors with specific domains. And many of these actually have guanosine triphosphate binding proteins or G proteins. Those are going to go on to activate other secondary messengers, uh, such as, of course, adenylate cyclase, which means that you're functioning here at the level of a beta adrenal receptor, for example, 
or the phosphate pathway, which are the alpha adrenal receptors. Okay. So a drug which binds to a receptor, produces a maximum response, is called a full-on agonist. A drug that binds and produces less of a maximum response is called, of course, partial agonist. Drugs which bind but do not activate secondary messenger systems are called antagonists. So antagonists can only produce effects by blocking the excess of the natural transmitter, which of course would be an agonist to the receptor. Thus, beta blockers produce relatively little change in heart rate when given to subjects at rest, as there is low sympathetic tone and little noradrenaline, which is of course the natural agonist, to be antagonized at the beta receptor. The effects of the system usually by, for example, excessive exercise, for example, the degree to which exercise induced tachycardia will be blocked. So partial agonists produce an effect if no agonist is present, but act as antagonists in the presence of a full agonist. Um, example, pindolol, which is a beta blocker, which is a partial agonist, produces less decreases in heart rate than pure antagonists, such as Propanolol. Okay, so this is just the nomenclature we use. So selectivity in drug action is related to the structural specificity because structure begets function in biochemistry. <laughs> so the structural specificity of the drug binding to, for example, as we just mentioned, a receptor. Propanolol binds equally well to the beta 1 and 2 adrenal receptors whereas atenolol and metaprolol bind uh, selectively to and block, actually, because they're antagonists at beta-1 adrenal receptors. Salbutamol is a selective beta-2 adrenoceptor agonist, and in that case, additional selectivity is achieved by inhaling the drug directly to its site of action, which happens to be in the lung. So the second major question you can ask about the drug is, how does the drug effect vary with drug concentration? Okay, very important, obviously. And the design of the drug, and of course, and its uh, prescription and utilization in therapy, in pharmacotherapy in particular, of course. So the interaction of a drug with a receptor involves its binding to the receptor in the same structurally specific way that a substrate would bind to an active site of an enzyme. Same rate equations and similar kinetic parameters, such as Km and Vmax, are, of course, used then to describe a concentration effect. And that's a relationship of the drug to whatever its protein receptor or target may be. So the drug concentration effect relationship is described by the same function as the enzyme velocity substrate concentration relationship where you have E is the effect of the drug concentration C. So E max is the maximum effect at high drug concentrations when all the receptors are saturated that is occupied by the drug. And the EC50 is the drug's concentration to give half maximal of that effect. 
This is the simplest form of the concentration effect relationship and more complex expressions of that are necessary to explain whatever the observed pharmacological effect is. So you get often with a drug concentration versus its um, EC50, a sigmoidal curve that actually is nearly linear between 20 and 80% of the maximal. That would be then considered, that range where it's nearly, nearly linear, the effective therapeutic dose. Okay. All right. So this type of concentration response is produced by measuring a continuous parameter, for example, blood pressure, or for example, exercise-induced heart rate at various drug concentrations. So that's known as a graded concentration response curve, okay? Let's continue on now about pharmacodynamic classical considerations. Third major question for any pharmaceutical is how does the response vary with time after a single dose of a drug? After a single dose, drug concentration, of course, is going to fall typically in an exponential manner with time. So that event will, will be presented as a logarithm of drug concentration to make it linear with time. Initial concentration is high enough to be in the region of maximal response. There is initially a very small change in effect until the concentrations start to decrease. This is what is often required. Now, the decrease in effect is then approximately linear with time between 80% and 20%. Remember, that's our, those are the two guardrails for most pharmaceutical uh, potency events. And so you want between 80 and 20% of the maximal effect. If the dose had been such that the initial concentration was a four milligrams per liter, giving about an 80% maximal effect, the decrease in effect would have been linear with time from immediately after that dose. Okay. So how is the therapeutic range defined? something we have to consider. An alternative way of constructing what's called the concentration effect curve is to determine the percentage of a population of patients showing a defined response given a various drug concentration. For example, with phenytoin, it's a therapeutic response might be defined as greater than 80% decrease in the frequency of fits and the adverse effect defines the proportion of patients developing nystagmus on looking side or looking sideways. That's that is definitely a side effect. Okay. Now these are called quantal population concentration response uh, gradients, and they have the same shape and parameter as a graded concentration response curve that we just mentioned between the 80% and 20%. So quantal concentration response curves are constructed by determining the cumulative percent of a patient population 
with a discrete therapeutic or, as we said, an adverse effect. And such curves are uh, are well established. And one of the ones I just mentioned to you is with this anticonvulsant, which is supposed to control fits, called phenytoin. Now, some patients respond at lower concentrations. The therapeutic range most commonly than you know than what is more, most commonly used. So you might respond to 20, 10 to 20 milligram per liter, which can give a therapeutic response. And that would be, in this case, a reduction in the fit frequency. That may occur in most patients with still a very acceptable incidence, that means low incidence, of the adverse effect. So you have the therapeutic effect, and you want that to always be above the curve of the adverse effect as you increase drug concentration. And consider then the percentage of patients that respond to the therapeutic effect at the same time as drug concentration is increased, the potential for the adverse effect. So when is the drug concentration not a good indicator of response? You can ask that question. So the first thing to consider, drugs used at concentrations which give a maximal response. Think about hit and run drugs. Some drugs act irreversibly. For example, the classical monoamine oxidase inhibitors or the effect of aspirin, which acetylates the enzyme cyclooxygenase in platelets. So termination of those effects relies on synthesis of a new um, monoamine oxidase or the regeneration of the platelets. So there's no relationship between drug concentration and effect because it completely acts as basically a suicide inhibitor. Okay. So again, more discussion of these monoamine oxygenase inhibitors. So monoamine oxygenase inhibitors or MAOIs, are usually antidepressant drugs prescribed for depression. Now, these are kind of classical, um, old school, but they're a good way to describe uh, pharmacodynamics. Now, they're particularly effective in treating atypical depression, which have also shown efficacy in actually smokers who want to quit smoking. There are two isoforms of monoamine oxidase, MAOA and MAOB, where the A isoform preferentially deaminates, it's a mixed function oxidase, serotonin, melatonin, adrenaline, and actually noradrenaline. Dopamine is equally deaminated by both types of the MAOA and MAOB. Um, uh, inhibitors of monoamine oxidase. So many MAOI formulations use forms of fluoride attached to assist getting past the blood-brain barrier. And it's suspected to be a factor in pineal gland effects, actually, that fluoride uh, association. Now consider also drug concentration when there is not an indicator of response. You have something called delayed distribution. So the site of the drug action is at a site to which the drug is slowly distributed. 
the effect increases as the drug concentration actually starts to fall. Now, because that's because of redistribution of the drug, which is the result of a delayed distribution, you see? So drug concentration soon after a dose causes a smaller effect than the same concentration caused later on when the distribution to the site of the action has finally been reached. Okay, so that's a really important consideration. We also can consider if the wrong effect is measured. So think about acute tolerance. That can develop sometimes with things like amphetamines and cocaine. The drug cross concentration soon after a single dose will cause a greater effect than the same concentration causes at a later time. That again is known as acute tolerance. Okay. It's also known as tachyphylaxis. Now, uh, most drugs go through a preclinical trial. They have to be screened and that's usually eliminating 95 to 99% of all of potential pharmaceuticals. After that screening is done, you have a phase one, which is determining an acute toxicity range. Usually you have to work with two animal species, mammals, of course. And then you also in phase one trials, you have to, these are all preclinical now. You have to determine the main effect the duration, and indeed the side effects, all the things we've just been talking about. Phase two preclin trial is going to deal with pharmacokinetics. You want to look at subchronic toxicity, again, in two animal systems. You want to look at reproduction toxicity, mutagenicity. You want to also determine in phase two trials if you can synthesize a drug on a technical scale and you want to analyze and develop final dosage ranges and produce, finally, uh, a drug that can go for clinical trials. So produce clinical samples. So for the clinical trials, phase one, you have to have a minimum of 20, much better to have uh, at least 80 healthy volunteers. You're looking for the lowest effective dose and the highest tolerated dose in a phase one clinical trial. You want to look at the duration of the effect, and of course you want to look at side effects, and you want to do the complete workup on the pharmacokinetics. Phase two clinical trials, you want to increase po the population of the patients, at least up to 100 or 200, and they have to have whatever the pharmaceutical is targeting. Let's say it's a targeted disease. So there again, you want to look at dosage range and efficacy. You want to have a mix between male and females. And usually with the females, you want to have them being, um, in you, if you can, in a non-childbearing capacity in case the drug has not been screened for pregnancy. Phase two trials, you want to have chronic toxicity. And you also start looking at carcinogenic properties. And that can all be determined in animal models beforehand. You can also do carcinogenic properties in cell culture. That would be at the preclinical level. But now that you're in the clinical trial, you've got to look for that again, because now you're in the human population. Phase three clinical trial is going to be a double blind, classical, where the um, dispenser of the drug, usually a clinician and the patient, 
Neither of them know if they're getting the drug or not. You also want in phase three to be able to do a crossover study where you uh, take the people that hit, were on the placebo and put them on the real drug and the people that on the real drug, put them on the placebo. Um, usually this involves several hundreds to even thousands of subjects. So the larger the trial, the better. <clears throat> What's phase three? It's still determining efficacy. It's looking at very hard at therapeutic and of course, still at safety profiles. You want to determine possible interactions with other drugs or maybe even the diet. And you want to demonstrate indeed a therapeutic advantage for the new pharmaceutical somewhere during a phase three file uh, trial. Then you want to do registration and you maybe launch and sell. So if you're a pharmaceutical company, registration has to have many, many, many studies with several, several, several thousands of pages of data that have to be reviewed by people who do not work for the pharmaceutical company. The FDA has to review it and that can take minimum of two to three years. Total time from the idea of design of the pharmaceutical to the market can be anywhere from eight to 10 years. That's common if you look at the FDA um, paperwork. Total cost of a given drug can be anywhere from 100 million to a half a billion dollars by the time it gets to registration, sometimes much more than that. You can do fast tracking for uh, selected drugs, and then you can save a lot of time on the process, and that means it'll be a great reduction in cost to the pharmaceutical company, okay? Then the launch and sales, you get manufacturing, commercial marketing. Uh, the information is then spread out to all the wholesalers and pharmacists also get all the information. And the providers, of course, do at the same time. Those would be the clinicians. And then there is a very market after market surveillance. And this is monitored by uh, refereed uh, published papers and usually medical journals where these are devoted to clinical trials and to use of drugs once they pass those clinical trials. On pharmacodynamics, uh, you have to think about pediatric issues. And even in uh, pharmacokinetics, that has to be considered because they're going to be different, right? So both dynamics and kinetics in adults uh, can be well established, but what are the dynamics and kinetics in children? Usually this is a lot more difficult to ascertain because we normally do not screen drugs through children unless it's a disease that's specifically associated with young children, such as inborn errors of metabolism, where they first, symptoms and signs first um, are shown. So less than about 25% of all the available drugs are usually ever shown to be safe and effective. And there have been numerous therapeutic disasters. And because of that, these drugs become what we call therapeutic orphans are put on the shelf. Sometimes those therapeutic orphans can be used if the FDA is asked to approve them for what's called an off-label use. Okay. Now with pediatric kinetics, a very uh, a specific subset of pharmacokinetics, you, first of all, when you're looking at absorption, you want to do a skin surface area study. And the next thing you're going to look at a GI tract. 
Uh, so gastric emptying, bowel surface area, and transit time, because the pediatric body is going to be uh, much different than the adult in all of those metrics, right? And so that's got to be redone for the smaller, uh, for, the, for the children. Skin surface area, GI tract, okay? Pediatric connect, you also have to have new principles for distribution, the distribution uh, component. Peripheral circulation, uh, because it, yeah, it's got to be studied much more carefully because it's poorly developed. Muscle mass, it's much smaller than the adult. Drug pass through the blood-brain barrier happens a lot more conveniently and easily in pediatric patients. Also, there's a decreased protein binding to drugs, and that would, of course, change the free drug in neonate intolerance, free, uh, the, the concentration of the free drug in a neonate or in a toddler. Meta metabolic studies for pediatric kinetics, most drugs are metabolized slower uh, in uh, children because of the immature enzyme systems in neonates and infants. Usually between, like at very early ages, between two to four to six, um, you start to eventually catch up with or surpass adult systems for metabolism. So by uh, mid-teenage years, those young adults are actually very good at metabolic rate, even better than most adults, even over, say, 35 or 40. Pediatric connects, of course, has to be followed through with excretion. Of course, excretion is much slower right around birth. Um, but at adult levels, actually in about a year, if everything's going well. But you can get an increased half-life for some drugs. Dosing considerations, most doses are based on a milligram per kilogram basis. Um, you can get intramuscular versus oral dosing, short course versus long course, uh, monitoring pain after injection, uh, sometimes with uh, pediatric patients, you look for friendly preparations. Maybe they're sweetened or maybe they're moved more towards the oral category if they can be than rather than doing injections. And of course, when that happens, you have to ensure accurate oral dosing. So the clinician has to be trained for that as well. Then switching to the much older, the polypharmacy you see in the elderly. There are a lot of statistics which show that the expense uh, for studying polypharmacy in the elderly is getting into the billions of dollars. And there are a lot of cases where polypharmacy will lead to morbidity and mortality in the elderly, something we've been talking about a great deal, right? So we all through this uh, pharmacodynamics and kinetics, there is a, another feature that we can talk about called pharmacogenetics and then ultimately pharmaco epigenetics. So at the level of pharmacogenetics, we can describe something called personalized medicine. There are now numerous pharmacogenetic studies, and they've actually shown multiple polymorphisms of drug metabolizing enzymes, transporters, the receptors that bind, and actually all of that contributes to quite a variation in drug response. So once you start looking at the pharmacogenetics, which actually should start on early, even in the clinical trials, it takes a longer time to catch up because you need a larger cohort of humans who have already been taking the drug to be able to examine the genetics. Plus, 
Many of the aspects of the genetic component are occult until the drug is administered. And then you pick up on mutations or alterations in splicing, for example, that would lead to different isoforms or different expression patterns of enzymes, which may facilitate or may detoxify a given pharmaceutical or maybe amplify its signal of potency. And this does not come out until after the drug has been administered, you see. So these are things which um, then exacerbate the entire um, pharmaceutical application to dealing with diseases. Now, as a person ages, all the receptors that normally react to drugs, as well as all of the targets themselves, the drugs are limited to. And then what happens to the sequelae of effects after the drug is bound to its target and carried out the process, such as controlling programmed cell death and T cells, that whole process that follows subsequent to that changes dramatically as a person reaches the uh, older population. That's why morbidities increase tremendously with polypharmacy patients, especially if they have underlying diseases which are even now being maintained by those pharmaceuticals, such as obesity, such as cardiovascular disease, such as diabetes type 2. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, I think we've gotten a good uh, level done today, and plus my time is up. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra. come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, hoping you're having a good Saturday afternoon and saying bye for now.